Amen. All right, check this out. He may have been the son of a saloon operator, but once he was saved, man, he became what many considered to be the greatest evangelist of all time. And it started in 1733, where he, uh, shortly after getting saved, he entered into Oxford University, and he fellowshiped with the likes of John and Charles Wesley. Uh, soon he was preaching in jails to the prisoners and doing missionary work in the colony of Georgia at that time. It was just a colony. But that was just the beginning. Next, he traveled to Scotland and Wales and seven more times to America, where thousands of people were saved. In fact, it said that, listen, his voice could be heard at a range of one mile without amplification, and that his speaking powers were of such that he could make an audience weep just with his pronunciation. I'd do that with my rotten grammar, but he did it for anyway. <laughs> Anyway, as the crowds who came to see him, man, they, they were some of the greatest ever assembled at that time uh, to hear the preaching of the gospel. And again, this was before modern amplification or advertising. In fact, his open-air preaching reached as many as 100,000 people in one gathering. Okay, Try doing that even today with all of our modern media. And when they came, as many as 500 people at a time would fall and lay prostrate on the ground under the power of a single sermon and get saved right during the progress of the service. Okay. In fact, in one service alone, 10,000 people were saved. And this one Christian man preached more than 18,000 sermons and an average of about 500 a year, almost 10 a week, all in all, when a time when travel was extremely primitive, it's estimated that he preached to a total of 10 million people. Now get this, what a way to go. On a balcony not far from his deathbed, okay, he went out there, he preached his last message of hope to an audience of more than 2,000 people. Okay, and then he died within an hour of extending the invitation to receive Christ as their Savior. Now, that's a cool way to go, okay? Now, his name, of course, is George Whitfield. Interesting. What a guy. Now, folks, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but I'm kind of thinking that uh, George Whitfield, he kind of had a cool life as a Christian, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Ooh, man, that's awesome, right? Okay, in fact, so much so, I would say, now that is a Christian life worth living for, Amen. Okay, that's the way to go, okay? But here's the problem, okay? This is the strange irony that I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed too in the American church. Even though God is the same God, okay, and, and we're just as much his children as George Whitfield is, right? Turn to somebody and say, I'm a child of God, right? We're just as much his child, right? What, here, here's what goes on in the church, okay? Most Christians read the Bible in one hand, then we take a look at our life in the other hand, and we go, something, something ain't working here, something's missing, Something doesn't compute. Why is it that I get to hear stories about these amazing Christians like George Whitfield, and they got this amazing walk with Jesus Christ. He uses them to do amazing things, and here I am fumbling around in the dark. I don't have a Christian life worth living for. I got a, I got a life worth giving up, okay? But folks, this is the theme of our study, and this is the great news. It doesn't have to be that way. Read the Bible. Believe it or not, folks, God's the same God. We're his children too. And so that means that a life worth living for, just like George Whitfield had, is available to every single Christian. Turn to somebody and say, and that means you. Okay? It really is. Okay? And that's why we're going to begin a new study called A Life Worth Living For. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at different keys that I believe 
and that I've personally experienced myself that I believe are pivotal if we're going to have an amazing walk with Jesus Christ, a fruitful walk with Jesus Christ, just like George Whitfield had, okay? And because, and I say that because of this. Think of the timing of what we just finished up. We just finished up here at Sunrise another 30-week study on Bible prophecy. Now, you couple that with the other one that we did about a year and a half ago. That's another 50. So for those of you who hooked on math and don't even own a calculator, that's 80 Bible prophecy studies, right? Now, listen, believe it or not, I don't download this stuff from the internet. I don't wait for somebody to mail it to me. Believe it or not, this is God's direction. Did you know that? And having us go through what he wants us to go through, okay? So I'm sitting there going, man, God, that's a lot, right? Um, most churches say we can touch prophecy, but man, we've gone through it 80 weeks in a compressed amount of time. My question is why? Why, God, would you drill it into our heads through 80 weeks of Bible prophecy here at sunrise that we are clearly living in the last days, right? Oh, I know, Bill. It's a logical conclusion. After 80 weeks of Bible prophecy, letting us know we're living the last days, the, the logical conclusion is this. <laughs> Let's sit around and do nothing. Thank you for that great Christian entertainment, Pastor Billy. That was awesome. Play that show again. No, I know. I know. 80 weeks of Bible prophecy, man. We're living the last days. What you do is you freak out, run to the hills, get your bug out shelter going, buy that survival gear, and check out from society. No. What do we see after 80 weeks of Bible prophecy? God, why are you drilling into our heads here at sunrise? We're living the last days. Because what's the logical conclusion? Save as many as you can. Ship's going down. Don't get distracted. Don't put your uh, tent stakes in too deep. This is just temporary. We know the scripture. God is not willing that any, any should perish, but he's willing that everyone come to repentance. So guess what? That's why we're still here. Did you know that? You have a purpose as a Christian. That's why we're not in heaven, right? Okay, how many guys are sucking air right now? Praise God you got a purpose. Isn't that neat, right? If you're still alive and sucking air, okay, that means you're not in heaven. How many guys can agree on that? For those of you who didn't raise your hand, we'll pray for you, okay? No, okay, so that means, listen, he's got a purpose for us. And that purpose is we are left behind, not into the seven-year tribulation. We're left behind before he comes and gets us at the rapture or we should die, whatever comes first, so that we can get out there and share the blessed gospel. So that, listen, we don't get to heaven empty-handed. Now, isn't that a life worth living for? Now, here's the problem. That's why I think partly why God had us go through 80 weeks of Bible prophecy here at sunrise. Here's the problem, okay? Unlike George Whitfield, who obviously had a heart for evangelism, hello, it gets pretty obvious, we either as Christians don't evangelize, or when we do evangelize, we mess it up. We give people a rotten advertisement for Jesus, and the way that we do that is with our countenance. We know the right stuff in our head, but our countenance messes it up. Let me give you a scenario. I'm sure this never happens to any of us here at Sunrise. This has got to be some church way down, probably in South America is my guess, way far away. Okay, but we, we go around in society, we, we say, oh yeah, come to Jesus, he's great, he's awesome, and all week long, we walk around and go, or we say, hey, come to Jesus, he's, he's the greatest thing ever, you've got, please try Jesus, oh, there's so much joy, it's awesome, it's great, and what do we do? And people, the world's not dumb, the world is not dumb, they know better, right? And we all know this. Do you remember this? Before you became a Christian, there's nothing worse than somebody telling you about Jesus, but they're grumpy all the time. They're mean, they're depressed, they're angry, they whine, they complain. And what did we say as non-Christians? 
I don't want none of that stuff. It ain't working for you. It ain't going to work for me. It's called hypocrisy. Okay, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at uh, how do we improve on our countenance in these last days so that not if, but when we share the gospel, we're backing it up. Amen? And I think it'll be much more fruitful uh, as like George Whitfield. Okay, and the first way we're going to do that is we need to relearn how to experience God's joy, right? There's nothing like a great advertisement for Jesus. When a Christian goes through hard times, just like the non-Christian, but what do they go through it with? Joy. Oh, it's like a moth to a flame, right? And that's what we need to do, okay? And even though this is clear all of the scripture, have you noticed when it comes to experiencing God's joy, okay, people, even Christians, are always looking for some sort of a shortcut, right? Some sort of a quick fix solution uh, instead of learning how to experience God's joy, okay? Nobody wants to take the time to discover how to obtain and maintain true, lasting, biblical joy. Okay, they'd rather pop a pill to pay any price just for a quick fix, right? In fact, it's getting so bad that they've come out with all kinds of new miracle drugs, right? Have you seen that? They're on TV, man. It's got, got a drug for this, drug for that. I'll fix this, right? Right, okay? And believe it or not, folks, I want to share some with you. And uh, just about anything you can think of, they got a drug now that will fix your problem. Let's see if you guys uh, would be tempted to buy some of these, okay? New miracle drugs. Well, one came out apparently called Directra. And a dose of this drug given to men before leaving on car trips will actually cause them to stop and ask for directions even when they get lost. Ladies, who couldn't use a dose of Directra? Right? That's, that's awesome. But here's another one. Projectorol. Men given this experimental new drug were far more likely to actually finish a household repair project before starting a new one. Huh? Projectorol gets your prescription uh, today. Or, hey, hey compliment of him. In clinical trials, men were actually able to notice that their wives had a new hairstyle. <laughs> you get it? Don't do what I did when I first got married. And it was literally that first week of getting married, right? After we got married, we got back from the honeymoon, and then Brandy decided to get this new hairdo, right? But she got one of those perms. And ladies, what happens when you first get perms? It's just this giant curl ball, right? Or at least that's what happened to Brandy. Man, she's probably watching online. But anyway, so <laughs> she comes in through the door, and, right, and I'm, just, I'm a young dummy. <laughs> and instead of giving her a compliment, I literally said this, like, what happened to your head? <laughs> I, sh I need some compliment of him. You know what I'm saying? I just don't do that. Wow, that was a rough week. Anyway, Viagra suppressant. Men pay attention. This is a good one. Upon taking this drug, women were reported to be able to resist any and all shopping urges, no matter how good that sale was. You could save some cash by investing in Viagra suppressant or extra uh, strength Sportacon. This drug had the strange effect of making men want to turn off televised sports and actually converse with other members of the family. Right? Hang on, we made it through the Super Bowl, it's, but anyway. Uh, and lidocillin, this drug caused men to actually lower the toilet seat without having to be told. <laughs> Ladies, you could use some lidocillin or antibiotics. Parents, pay attention when administered to teenage girls. This drug is highly effective in improving grades, freeing up phone lines, and reducing money spent on makeup. That's right, if you just get antibiotics. And St. Mom's Ward, listen, it's a plant extract that treats mom's depression by rendering preschoolers unconscious for a total of six hours, right? You get a great nap, you get all the housework done, if you just get some St. Mom's Ward. And finally, that's right, antitoxidant. This spray, carried in a purse or wallet, is to be used on anyone too eager to share their life stories with total strangers. I could have used that coming back from Orlando. And I'm not talking Debbie, I'm talking Bobby. <laughs> Man, let me tell you what. 
Say, woo, let's move on there. And nagament, that's right, nagament. When administered to a husband, this drug provides the same irritation as nagging him all weekend long, saving the wife the time and trouble of having to do it herself. Okay? Get the job done, you can get other things done, it's awesome, okay? Now, let's be honest, folks, if those drugs actually did exist, the trend in today, how many people would actually probably at least buy one of those things, right? I know I could use some complimentofen, okay? But here's my point, folks. Deep down inside, we're Christians. We know this. You've heard the phrase, you can't buy happiness. But guess what? Our problem is, doesn't keep us from trying. We listen to this world, okay? And it's one thing for the world to do this, but come on, we're Christians. This is the church, okay? Besides, the point is this, we're getting robbed. The Bible promises something much better than happiness, Okay, and it's called joy. Now pay attention because you got to get this definition. Worldly happiness is temporary excitement that's based on external circumstances. Did you catch that? But biblical joy is a permanent gladness regardless of your external circumstance. I'll say that again for those of you on the back row. Uh, worldly happiness is a temporary excitement <laughs> based on your external circumstances. But biblical joy from God is permanent regardless of what goes on around you. Which one would you rather have? Yeah, the real deal, biblical joy, okay? But the problem is we don't realize this. This joy is not just awesome. Believe it or not, it's free for the asking, and it's complete. All you got to do is seek it in Jesus. I didn't say that. He did. This is our opening text, John 15. Let's take a look there. John 15, we're going to read verses 5 through 11, and this, of course, is coming from Jesus, okay? John 15, how do you get this permanent gladness, this biblical joy, Okay, well, Jesus said, here's what you got to do, okay? And believe it or not, you don't have to uh, buy this DVD or this recording. You don't even have to go to a seminar. Just read the Bible. He tells us right here uh, in this passage. John 15, verse 5, here's what Jesus says. I am the vine, but you are the what? Branches. Now, here's the deal. Here's the condition. If, if a what? If a man, what? Remains in me, Jesus, and I in him, he will what? You will bear much fruit. In fact, apart from me, you can do nothing. If, there's a condition again, anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and, and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. You ever feel like you started out with great joy, but all of a sudden you're dry and crusty? Are you remaining in him? Flame it up again, okay? In the good sense there. He says, now, if you remain in me, though, and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you, because God wants you to have that new Cadillac and that Armani suit. Oh, don't take things out of context. What's the very next verse say? Uh, this is what? This is to my Father's glory, right? If it's in concert with God's will, if it's for his glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, as the fathers loved me, so Jesus said, I have loved you. Now, remain, he says it again, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this to torture you, because we all know following Jesus is just, oh, man, he's always trying to ruin our fun. And fun. Now, what's he saying? He said, I have told you this, that my what? joy my joy what we could stop right there did you guys ever, have you read it i haven't found it in the scripture yet when you see jesus walking around <laughs> he's all gripping you jesus gives us his joy not the world's his joy it's an amazing thing okay and listen so that your that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what's the word there complete 
Okay, this is an amazing text, and Jesus gives us the answer to the question, how do you get this permanent gladness regardless of your external circumstances? He says it's when we simply, Christian, listen, come to him, not just in salvation, but if you continue to come to him and remain in him and his love and keep his commandments, which is showing that you love him, I'm going to give you something really cool. I'm going to give you my joy. Not the world's joy, my joy. Okay, why? He says, in fact, I'm not just going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you complete. Now, what's interesting in the, in the Greek there, it literally means to be made full or literally to the top. I mean, literally, the idea is just, I'm going to give you so much of my joy. You just remain in me, Christian. You just abide in me. You just get busy loving me. I'm going to give you so much joy, you can't even contain it. Anybody want that? Okay, yeah, okay. But so that's the question. Let's take stock. How are we doing? Are we remaining in Jesus? Are we abiding in Jesus every single day, not just when times are hard? Is, are we filled to the uh, top with joy, or are we still scraping the bottom for happiness? And can I tell you something? Again, don't miss this study. It's not just about us being joyful. If you're not full of joy, Jesus' joy, how's that affecting your witness? Oh, you might say the right Bible verse, but how's that affecting your witness? See, that's the other half of this. It's not just about us. It's about the lost. So if you and I, if we take stock of the American church today, I think we'd agree. Sometimes it looks, you look across the spectrum. Again, not here. This is in South America, apparently. Uh, it looks like we've been uh, sucking on lemons and sour pickles and prunes. I'm the Jesus. He's great. Not a good advertisement, okay? So if we're going to experience God's joy in these last days and be a positive witness, a life worth living for like George Whitfield, I think we better take a look at some ways that the world tricks us and seduces us into seeking this temporary happiness that never lasts instead of just simply abiding in Christ and receiving his joy. How about you? Hey, good answer. We're going to do it anyway. The first way uh, we get tricked is this. We are tempted by the world to seek happiness in things instead of joy from the king. Can I tell you what that is? It's called idolatry. Seek happiness in things. You make something your idol. This is it. This is this, this thing, not God. This thing will make me happy. And that's your first downfall. And the first thing that this world tempts you and I to seek happiness in instead of biblical joy is perfect comforts. Because we all know, man, just go shopping, right? You just go shopping, man. You get that new doodad, that thing, and everything's great in life, right? And believe it or not, folks, this is what we do, okay? Instead of receiving a permanent joy in Jesus Christ, this world tempts you and I to seek for temporary happiness in all the new frills that this world has out there. It's called material goods, right? You just buy this thing. It's going to be awesome, okay? For instance, we actually will say stuff like this. Even as Christians, I've heard it. Well, I, 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 the reason why I'm, I'm grumpy is because I'm not happy as a Christian. But you know what? Instead of listening to Jesus and just abiding in him every single day, remaining in his love, woo, I'll be happy when I get a new car. We say that as Christians. What? You know, we just get a new car, right? A new car, because you got to get a new car, right? It's got that new car smell. Yeah, isn't it awesome? Yeah, until what, about two, three months later, what happens? Here comes the french fries. Here comes the stale Coke. Here comes that apple rolling out from underneath the seat that you forgot the kids did in the back seat, and now it looks like some shrunken head thing, and it's creeping and stinking and all that Okay, yeah, granted, a new car in the beginning. Hey, it's cool, it's, right? But the new car smell fades away, so guess what? If that's where your happiness is in, it fades away too, doesn't it? That's the seduction, okay? But then we say, no, 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 I'll be happy when I get that. 
no, a new wardrobe, a new outfit. If I, man, I just got to get that new shirt, the new blouse, whatever, and I'll be snappy, and I'll be happy, and that even rhymes. And it'd just be, it'd be great, and it's right. Well, how many guys have noticed you got that new blouse or that new shirt, but the first time that you ate greasy popcorn, right? Or you went out to eat, and you just had to have that spaghetti on that white blouse, Right? What happens? It starts to wear out, right? Your clothes wear out. So guess what? If that's where your happiness is in, it wears out too. It doesn't last. We don't even stop there. We say, no, 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 I'll be happy when I get that, uh, that new apartment or the new pad or the new house or whatever it is, okay? But yeah, granted, just like with the clothes, just like with the car, when you first moved into that new place, that carpet was snappy. That was happening. It was bright. It was clean. And three months later, what do you got going on? Watch out for that spaghetti. Watch out for those French fries. 900 stains. Honey, let's go buy some throw rugs. Right? It starts to fall apart. So if you put your happiness in that, guess what happens? It falls apart too. It's funny, folks, but this is what we do. And again, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong if you... Praise God, God bless you with a new car. I'm not saying there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I'm not saying if you got a new wardrobe or outfit or whatever, you can't enjoy that, okay? I'm not saying if you got a new pad, a new apartment, a new house, I'm not saying you can't enjoy that. Listen, but don't make the mistake of placing your joy in them. Why? Because perfect comforts don't last forever. And God wants to give you something better than that. No matter if you ever get a new house, new car, new anything, if you've got nothing, you can still be joyful in Jesus Christ. And this is what Habakkuk said. This is, you talk about the ultimate bad day. Okay, chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, he says this. Listen, even though the fig trees have no blossom, there goes crop number one. Even though there's no grapes on the vine, there goes my security blanket. Right? Even though the olive crop fails, oh, man. There's my backup plan. I got nothing. Listen, even though the fields lie empty and barren, I ain't got nothing. And then if you thought it was bad, check this out. He says this. He says, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns. Wow, I was right. I don't even have cows anymore. No crops, no cows. It's a bad day. So, and yes, right. And so... There's my justification as to why I can walk around as a Christian being an absolute grump. Because, hey, you can't excuse it, right? Because I ain't got nothing. I don't have any of these creature comforts. Watch what he says. This is awesome. This is way better. Yet, I will rejoice in who? Where's your joy? It's in God. I, in fact, I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. I've said this before, and I'm getting ahead of myself. You having a bad day? You a little grumpy as a Christian? Every day, do this five times a day. This will change your countenance. Look in the mirror and say, Jesus Christ, thank you for saving me from eternal damnation in hell. Oh, by the way, you'll probably forget about it shortly after. So about 10 o'clock, go back, find a mirror, even at work, and look in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving me from hell. Yeah. Do it again at noon, do it in that afternoon, and before you go to bed, Jesus, thank you for... You, you got to pay somebody to slap the smile off your face. Because that's where you get the joy. It's in the God of yourself. What did he save you from? Not just to, what did he save you from? And that's what Habakkuk says, man. He says, listen, even though I got no crops, he says, even though all of a sudden there's no cows, and that's bad. He said, I can still have this joy, okay? And this is what he's talking about, guys. He's saying, listen, there's no way that comforts last forever. Comforts come and comforts go, and so does trying to find happiness in them. But if you would just seek joy in God, 
no matter what you have externally in your so-called comforts, doesn't matter, does it? You can have joy. So I ask you, which would you rather have? Happiness or joy? And it's not just about you. How's this affecting your witness? So choose joy. The second thing that we're tempted to find temporary happiness in, instead of permanent gladness, joy in Jesus, is a perfect future. Right? Here's the next dangling carrot. And this is what they do. They trick us in the world, even in the church. Instead of receiving a permanent joy in Jesus Christ, the world tempts you and I uh, to seek this uh, so-called happiness in a fortunate vocation. And what we say, we put ourselves, oh, I can't, be happy. I can't be joyful now. There's just no way it's impossible. But you know what? I'll be happy when I get that new raise. Huh? Won't that solve all the problems? If I just get that new raise, get some extra cash, everything comes. How many guys learned this one? Okay, fine. Praise God, you get a new raise. It doesn't take long for it to get eaten up by the new bills. <laughs> right? And uh, so guess what? If that's where your happiness is, it gets eaten up too. Then we'll say this, okay, forget that. I, I need something bigger than that. I don't need just new raise. I'll be happy when I get that new job, right? If I just get that new job, everything will be great. I'll get, leave all that stuff behind, what was going on there. And, then, and then, then that's when I can be happy. That's when I can be a positive witness for Jesus. I just need a new job. How many guys ever left one job that granted might have had a challenging employee or employer, and then you left it and you got a new one, but now you got two. And boy, are they dragging you down. And it ain't all it was dreamed up to be. And so guess what? You put your happiness in that, your happiness gets dragged down too. It doesn't last, okay? And again, there's nothing wrong if you got it raised. Praise God. Got a new job. If God's truly leading you in a new direction, nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, don't make the mistake of placing your joy in them. Why? Because perfect futures don't last forever. And this is also what we see in the scripture. James actually warned us about this. Don't do this, Christian. You know, get new, in the future, if I just get this new job, I just get this new... No, he says, no, no. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such city, and we're going to spend a year there. We're going to carry on business. We're going to make money. We're going to get a new job, and we're going to get a new raise, and life will be great. He said, excuse me? He says, you don't even know the least thing what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, by the way, what is the nature of your life? What is your life? You're really but a wisp, a vapor, a puff of smoke, a mist that's visible for a little while, and then poof, disappears, the Amplified says, into thin air. Wow, that's pretty intense. Now, folks, if we're honest with ourselves, granted, the Bible's very clear. We don't even know if we're going to be alive tomorrow, okay, let alone go to work tomorrow. And granted, I realize that that news for some workplaces is great news. <laughs> I'm not going to work. Okay, but that's not my point, okay? If you keep Christian projecting your so-called happiness in a so-called new future, you might just wake up one day and discover your new future disappeared in the thin air. And so guess what? Your happiness disappeared too. Bible says there's something better. Because here's the truth. Employment comes and employment goes, Amen. And so does trying to find happiness in that, okay? But if you would seek joy in God, listen, Christian, you could still be joyful. Even if you never get a raise. Even if your job never changes. And how would that radically change your witness at your vocation? With your boss. If you remained loyal and joyful. It's not about us. 
The third thing we're tempted to find happiness in uh, is what's called a perfect trip. Huh? Because won't that solve all ills? The reason why we're all so grumpy and we're bad witnesses for Jesus is because we just need a trip, right? And that's what they say. No, no, no. no it's, it, it really can't be that easy. I mean, are you serious? Just spending time with Jesus, remaining in him every single day, falling head over heels in love with him, maintaining that first love. Is it really that simple? No. You need to spend some cash. And here's what you need. We'll fix you up just like those miracle pills. What you need is you need a fancy vacation. No, you need a fabulous move. And so we go right on down, fall on that dangling carrot. We'll say stuff like this. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we'll say, no, I'll be happy when I, when I get to the new, the, the, the new vacation. Yeah, oh, man. I, I, okay, I'm grumpy now. I'm all depressed. And I know I'm a bad witness. But once we get to Disneyland... Now, folks, I don't know if you're like me. I've been to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World. Okay? But after about two days, Mickey Mouse starts getting on your nerves. <laughs> right? Three days of $14 popcorns at a pop and $9 Coke, so you get kind of goofy. In fact, you want to find Goofy and choke him behind a bush. It wasn't me. That was Brandy. No. Just, <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that what we do? I, I, there's no way I could be happy. I, I can't be full of joy. I can't, no, I just, I just need that. I need to sail away to that place. And that's when, and then I'll come back and it'll all be different. If your happiness isn't that, it sails away too. And it's just as goofy thinking that that's where it's at. Okay? And that's what we do. Or, or we do something like this, okay? Oh, I'll be happy. This is, this is, this is the fixer. I'll be happy. Right? I'll be that positive witness for Jesus when I finally get to that new location. Right? We just need to move, right? Okay, but I don't know if you guys have learned this one or not. It's kind of like a package deal. Okay? Have you noticed that when you move, if God does move you on, okay, and that's the key phrase is God moving you on. But when he moves you on, have you noticed that uh, your problems, they kind of go with you? It's like a package deal. And do you know why? It may have taken me a while to figure this one out, John, because I've discovered that wherever you go, there you are which means they're coming with you. You know, he said, he says, you know, my family, we had some challenges growing up. In fact, we moved around a lot. My parents, he said, they moved around four different times growing up. He said, I found them every time though. <laughs> Not a good family. Okay. But listen, just because you moved, have you noticed after the dust settles, what pops back up to the surface? Anything's new and exciting in the beginning. Same old problems. They came right with you. Right? They didn't just magically, oh, bye, put them in the box. Leave for those people who buy that house now. Just don't open that box. Right? It doesn't work that way. Okay? In fact, folks, if we're honest with ourselves, just because, again, there's nothing wrong with, if, if God gives you a, a, a vacation, there's nothing wrong if he calls you to a new location. I'm not saying that that's bad, but don't make the mistake of placing your joy in them. Because, folks, let's be honest, not all trips turn out like we want him, right? Got this dream and how's it supposed to go? But sometimes you get surprised, right? Like, like what happened this couple. There was this Canadian couple who needed a warm weather climate vacation after spending several cold winters in Canada. So here's what they did. They, they booked this exclusive suite in an Arizona resort, not too far from us here in Vegas. But because of a last minute business meeting, the wife had to leave a day later than her husband. And so after an early flight, the husband checked in by himself into the resort. He unpacked his new computer, his laptop there, and he sent off his wife a quick email. 
But his fingers found the new keyboard a little awkward at first, and so he got one letter wrong in his wife's email address. But without seeing the mistake, he sent the email off. Okay. Well, meanwhile, in Texas, in Texas, and it wasn't you, okay, this widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He had been a pastor of a large church, and he suddenly died of a heart attack. And so she sat down at her computer in Texas to check her email and expecting to see some more consoling messages from the church members. Instead, she got this email. It said this, quote, to my loving wife. Subject, I've arrived. And it goes on. I know you're surprised to hear from me, but they have computers here now. <laughs> and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've been told the good news by the management that everything has been prepared for your arrival with me here tomorrow. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> and yes, she screamed and passed out. <laughs> what? Folks, how many times do you build this up inside of you? Oh, this is, I'll be so joy when we get to that new place or that vacation and we got there and you get there on that vacation or that new place and it ain't all what it's cracked up to be. It might as well say, oh boy, is it hot down here. Your problems don't magically go away. Folks, the Bible's got something better, okay? Don't project your happiness, your joy, into something that cannot last. You're going to end up heart sick. And this is actually what Proverbs warns us about from Solomon. He says this, verse, chapter 13, verse 12, he says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Isn't that the trap? Okay, I, I know it stinks now, and I, I can't stand it, but, 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 but there, and if, when I get it, I get, I get that. You keep putting your hope in that, you're going to get heart sick. Right? He says, but when dreams do come true, there is what? There's not just life, there is joy. Okay? The Bible clearly says, folks, there is joy when our dreams come true. But let's be honest, guess what? All of our dreams don't always come true. Can I sit, say as a side note, you know why sometimes our dreams don't come true? Because we're not dreaming God's dream. We're dreaming our dreams or the world's dreams. But you dream God's dreams that He put in your heart. He says, I'll give it to you unto my Father's glory. But here's the point, folks. The Bible says, listen, dreams don't always turn out like they want them to, but here's the point. If you keep deferring your hope and happiness in a new place, you might as well end up heartsick and shocked like that lady, okay? Because here's the truth. Trips comes and travels go. And so it is trying to find happiness inside of them, okay? But if you would seek joy in God, listen to this. You can still have that awesome, wonderful, biblical, nonstop joy even if your location never change. And you're in that place until the rapture comes or you die and go to be with Jesus. Oh, how would that affect your witness with the people you live with? Your family, your neighbors. Maybe they would listen up a little better when you start talking about Jesus. The final one we're going to deal with today, the fourth thing that we're tempted to find happiness in, this is the big one, okay, is the so-called perfect bank account. Huh? Because you guys heard this, right? Life will be great. I'll be happy when I have enough money. Isn't that what it is? Instead of receiving that permanent biblical joy from Jesus Christ, regardless of cash, oh, it didn't cost you nothing except open the Bible. Spend some time in prayer, that's all. Instead of receiving that permanent joy in Jesus Christ, this world says, no, 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 you need to, you need to seek happiness in money. 
And here's what we do. Say, I'll be happy when. This is why I'm so grumpy. No, it's because this. Because it's not here yet. But when it gets here, when I get that next thousand dollars, and I'll be able to pay this off, and I'll get. Anybody learned that, okay, at one point, at one time, that first thousand dollars that seemed so big, and that was the solution to fix everything. It's kind of shrunk now from inflation. You put your happiness in that thing, guess what? Your happiness shrinks too. But then we'll go even further. We'll say, no, 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 no. I'll be happy when, if I can somehow guarantee a whole giant wad of cash in my bank account or some retirement plan or this, there, and then then that's going to guarantee me that I can somehow stop working when I'm 50 years old, sit around and do nothing. I want to take a detour. You show me that verse in the Bible. Where Christians, the goal in life is just to stock up a bunch of cash just so you can get it some hopefully earlier than later age to sit around and do whatever you want to do and nothing for Jesus. I haven't found it yet. We are to serve him until we see him. And if you're not serving in the Father's business, somebody has seduced you into idolatry. But that's what we say, okay? But folks, how many guys have learned this the hard way? One plummet in the stock market, bang! Bang! Everything went down the tubes, didn't it? But what did that drop? And if your happiness was in that, guess what happened to it? Boom. It dropped too. It bottomed out. Okay? Folks, again, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong about saving a thousand bucks. Hey, pay off some bills. Be a responsible steward for Jesus Christ. I'm not against that. There's nothing wrong about being prepared for the future. Scripture talks about that. I'm not talking that there's anything wrong with the retirement plan. I'm not saying that. That's not my point. The problem is don't make the mistake of placing your joy in them because it may never get there. And you could have something better right now regardless of your financial status called joy. Oh, and by the way, learn the lesson from some people who did seek to be rich beyond their wildest dreams because that'll fix everything right now. I'm going to share with you folks the fate of the world's richest men. You tell me if this gave them biblical joy. And this is actually what actually happened. True story. In 1923, a very important meeting was held at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. And in attendance were the nine world's most successful financiers, men who have found the secret of making money. Right? So these guys had been oozing full of joy. Decades later, let's see what happened. True story to every single one of these guys. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, died bankrupt and lived on borrowed money for five years before he died. You get some, and it went away, right? Another one, the president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign land. Got into trouble and lost it all, okay? Another guy, president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, he went insane, not with joy, by the way. He went insane. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cotton, he died abroad insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, spent time in Sing Sing Penitentiary. Uh, The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. The greatest bear on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, died as suicide. The head of the greatest monopoly, Ivan Kruger, died a suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, he also died a suicide. And yet, what's the world tell us? If you just have enough money, no. And even if you could, even if we're, I didn't even get to talk about that, right? Let's say God does bless you, because God does sometimes bless Christians, right, with that ability. 
Praise God. We're supposed to channel it for his purposes, by the way, not for the 19th swimming pool. Read the scripture, 2 Corinthians. Okay? But even if he does, have you noticed? You think, oh, it's going to be great. No. All of a sudden, about every hour on the hour, hi, remember me? I'm Cousin Joe Bob, your third cousin from Kentucky. Would you like to invest in my pickle farm? Right? And just everybody comes out of the woodwork. They find out you got money. So-called family, family, you didn't even know you had. And that just makes it joyful. No, you have to be careful. Sometimes, folks, as we saw in the extreme example with the richest men, no matter how big your bank account ever gets, it doesn't guarantee that you're always going to be happy. In fact, sometimes it creates a lot of problems. Okay? That's why, once again, the Bible's got a better way. Listen to this. This is a great example, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 2. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace. So who's doing this ability? It's a supernatural ability from God, about the grace God has given to the Macedonian churches. So these guys are Christians just like you and I. Now, listen to their predicament. What condition were they in? Did they have all kinds of cash? Listen to this. Out of the most severe trial, not just trial, severe trial, they still had what? Not just joy, but overflowing joy. Oh, and tucked away in there is also this, in their extreme poverty. Literally in the Greek, these guys don't even have two pennies to rub together. He says, yet, it's still welled up when it came time to give to the things of God in rich generosity. Here's Christians who are not just in trials, just like you and I, but they're in severe trials. Here's Christians who literally, literally, it means there, I don't even have two pennies. I only got one. But you know what? I love Jesus. Here you go. I'll give it. He's given me something better. He's given me heaven. He's rescued me from eternal damnation now. Oh, by the way, he's given me his word, and every day I can abide in him, and he in me, and he gives me something that no amount of pennies could ever buy. Which one would you rather have? I'll take biblical joy over the elusive, lying, temporary happiness. How about you? But see, you might be told now, as a Christian, as we close, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Billy, see, you don't get it. See, you don't understand my problems. You don't understand the things I go through, okay? I just, there's just, and we try to justify why we're so stinking grumpy and mean and depressed and a bad witness for Jesus, like, I've got a right to be this way. What? So, to hopefully dispel that, let's go back to the life of George Whitfield. You know, the guy that bore, God used to bear much fruit, thousands of people got saved. I'm sure the reason why he was so joyful and God used him to bear fruit and be a positive witness because he had those perfect bank accounts and perfect comforts and futures. And it was awesome, right? No. Here's the rest of the story you usually don't hear. George Whitfield was not only the youngest of seven children, but his father died when he was only two years old. Therefore, his widowed mother constantly struggled to keep the family together. Then to make matters worse, he contracted a really bad case of measles, which left him squint-eyed for the rest of his life. And don't you think people probably made fun of him? But it didn't stop there. Shortly after he was saved, he preached his very first sermon, whereupon he was not only mocked, but the people complained to the bishop that he, quote, drove 15 people mad with his sermon. In fact, many times while he preached, he was honored with having stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead animals thrown at him. 
In fact, one time he was struck on the head with stones, knocked him off the table he had been preaching on, and a mob gathered around intended to kill him. Then his so-called friends not only ran off and left him behind, but he barely escaped with his life. He walked nearly a half a mile all alone while people were still throwing stones at him, and he was covered in blood. Then he, a man proceeded to beat George Whitfield unmercifully with a gold-headed cane until he was almost unconscious, but that's still in all. He was even accused by his fellow church members of misappropriating funds, which he himself had collected. And later he got married, but one of his children had died and, and they were, when they were only four months old, and his ministry life wasn't a piece of cake either. He spent over two years of his life traveling on water, and in one year he traveled 800 miles on horseback. In fact, so many times, listen, did George Whitfield seek the power of God? That's your key. Abide in him every day. But so many times did he do that through fasting and prayer that his health was never the same again. And at last, at least once, he had to sell, listen, all, all his earthly possessions in order to pay for an orphanage he started as well as take care of his elderly mother. In fact, so much so that when he died, he did so as a complete pauper. Had nothing. Why? Because everything he had was sold for the Lord who saved his soul. If anybody had a right to justify why I'm grumpy, yeah, maybe I'm not the best Christian witness, but if anybody had the right, it was George Whitfield. Can we agree? But what did he do? He had a choice to make every day, and apparently he chose right, right? And he chose to abide in Jesus Christ. He chose to seek God. And you know what? God used him to lead thousands of souls to him. And he gave him a life worth living for. So I ask you here today, sunrise. If you're sick and tired of reading the Bible in one hand, looking at your life in the other, say, hey man, something's wrong here. Something's not right. Something doesn't compute, okay? Then maybe it's simply this. We need to get back to experiencing God's joy. Every single day, shut off the lies of this wicked world system. It's not in the perfect hope and the, the comforts and the future and the money and all that stuff. That's a lie. Just open up the Bible. Spend time with him. Talk to him. Love him. He says, you, that's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. It's not hard. I will so fill you with joy, it's bubbling out of your ears. And you'll have to hire Bobby to come by and slap the smile off your face. Right? Don't you want that? Here's my point. It isn't just for us. Now the people that we live with, we work with, our neighbors, we meet with at the gas station, the restaurant, whatever. When we start sharing Jesus with them, do you think maybe that might have their attention? That's how you experience God's joy. That's a life worth living for. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. 
And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you, that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says 
we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.